史长河。Serve human history like a river. We'll keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with modern-day unipolarity is precisely that the West is leading. Ukraine down the Primrose Path. We don't have enough tanks. We don't have enough vessels. We don't have enough planes to bring chip production here to the U.S. This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week, ESG wants the finance sector's next big thing. Environmental, social, and governance investing is being binned all over. With first BlackRock. Now Standard and Poor's shutting down their rating. Without ESG to guide them, how will investors locate worthy but unprofitable companies? And is this yet another domino falling as our illusions break down under the tectonic force of multipolarity? For years, companies have been selling so-called dim sum bonds out of a dodgy takeaway in Hong Kong. They're one of the easiest ways for foreigners to invest in the tightly controlled Chinese capital markets. The latest figures show the market for these tasty treats has quadrupled in five years. Is this the way that China's shielded industry meets the world's investors? Finally, after 18 months of sanctions, some metrics are pegging the Russian economy as being bigger than Germany's. If this is what 18 months does, we're wondering how big it'll be after three years. But first, exit silly games. The news this week is that the S and P Global has dropped the、uh, ESG alphanumeric scale. ESG is obviously environmental, social governance. It's a it's a nascent style of investing. It's got very popular in the past few years. Really, over the past cycle, the idea is basically to try and integrate. I suppose you'd say a moral component into investing. So that when investors go and they they look at a potential investment, they don't just ju- judge it on the fundamentals of the investment, on the business fundamentals, and so on. They judge it also based on this ESG criteria. Now, the ESG criteria is effectively a sort of a rating scale,、um, and this is what、uh, the S and P Global has dropped. They've said basically that they've determined that the dedicated analytical narrative paragraphs in their credit rating reports are more effective at providing. "Quote unquote detail and transparency on ESG credit factors material to our rating analysis." So that's bureaucracy speak for we're perfectly happy with our pre-ESG ratings, and we're not going to include the ESG ratings anymore. So that's a huge blow, obviously, to the ESG industry, which has grown pretty enormous recently. There were there were projections up until very recently that it would take over large amounts of the financial market and so on. I, I think those. Will turn out to be、uh, they always look to be, which was kind of another fad. This comes on the back of a few months ago, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink was speaking at the Aspen Festival Ideas, and he announced that BlackRock would no longer be using the term ESG. He claimed that it was because the term had been politicized. He was referencing the fact that Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis has been attacking ESG for quite some time. I believe he forced the Florida state government to avoid ESG investing a few months back, or two years back, or something like that. I think the concerns there were mainly around oil discovery, energy discovery. Basically, I don't know if ESG does actually punish energy production companies, but the kind of the mythos that circulates in conservative circles is that it does. So Larry Fink said, basically, this term has become politicized. We're not going to use it anymore. But I thought, you know, knowing the ESG scene pretty well and knowing how the metrics are constructed and so on, we can talk more about that in a moment. I think this was Fink's way of kind of, you know, dropping this and and blaming it on a politicization that, you know, and hands off. Then he said, I don't have to get involved in it. It was a big deal because、um, not only is BlackRock the largest asset manager in the world and therefore one of the biggest entities deploying on an ESG basis, but BlackRock was also a pioneer in the ESG field. So this was kind of embarrassing that they they dropped it now. Having S and P Global come out today and say we're not using effectively the ratings anymore,、um, I think、uh, I think ESG might not be might not have a long life left, shall we say? Yeah, this is interesting because 
ESG, as you say, has been um, very prominent in financial uh, media and in conversation of late. Um, it has increased, I would say, quite dramatically in terms of its prominence within, in theory anyway, investment decisions. There are a lot of funds and exchange-traded funds, ETFs, which look exclusively at ESG or at the very least demand high ESG ratings in order to invest in certain uh, securities. But it also, on the other side, uh, creates a great deal of uh, scorn and disdain and, and general general mistrust among more right-wing uh, commentators, uh, politicians, and investors. Uh, so I think a, a kind of a useful thing would be to, to look at what ESG is. ESG stands for uh, Environmental, Social, and Governance. And the idea is that companies can rack up scores based on how kind they are to the environment on a whole range of metrics, how strong their social policy is, and and that means things like you know gender quotas on boards of directors and uh, promotion of of women and minorities and uh, a whole range of other things. And finally, it you know the, the governance side is is generally kind of best practice corporate governance having things like non-executive directors on your board of directors to represent the interest of shareholders rather than of the management of the company and and so on and so forth and really they've uh, you know there's been a great deal of promotion from this there's a uh, as you say blackrock which is one of the most um, prominent kind of investment funds or should we say investment conglomerations in the world has been very prominent in this but so of some of the big investment banks. Now, when you tweeted, Philip, you said that you felt that, you know, this was a, a kind of the beginning of the end, I guess I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, for ESG. But, you know, when I read the news, uh, I mean, all the time you see, you know, ESG has the, you know, yet, yet another record in terms of its share of total investment. And, you know, it feels like this is still expanding as a phenomenon. Now, Standard & Poor's are a ratings agency. For people who don't know, they are generally paid to give grades to uh, debt securities, i.e. bonds. So when you read that the United States or, or Switzerland has a AAA rating on its government debt, AAA is the very highest, and, and these are assigned by a ratings agency, the Standard & Poor's, there's Fitch. Rating agencies essentially are... Uh, Standard and Poor's, at least as far as I understand, are, are removing the the ESG numerical references to their to their final rating. They're stripping it out, and they're just going to stick with an ESG kind of comment within their kind of assessment or anal analysis of um, analysis of a bond. And you believe that this is the kind of a, a really a sign that the ESG fad, as you put it is starting to kind of roll over the the wave has crested and it's going to be downhill from here would that be fair yeah i think it's probably worth understanding that there are kind of three groups who might comment on esg two of these groups are very large and one of them is very small but the small group is probably in a sense the most important uh, there are those that love esg they think it's the wave of the future that if you impose these um constraints in capital markets that will get some sort of a uh, happy-go-lucky just capitalism, which fixes all these social problems through this market rating scale. Then you have people, as you say, that hate ESG, that think um, that think that putting constraints on the market like this are very dangerous, uh, that they can uh, deprioritize certain investments. Um, you know, so if you if 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 you artificially tilt away from, for example, energy production, that you might end up with uh, problems in your energy grid and so on. And then there's the third group, which are quantitative financial analysts. Not many of them around, but would you believe pretty, um, pretty influential in this area because all these are quantitative financial metrics. And that's kind of the world I'm from. Um, when ESG came in, you heard pretty much, apart from maybe a few true believers whose, I guess, in a sense, ideology overrode their, um, professional skill set. It's hard to put any other way, but anyone who is a serious quantitative investor and knows how that, how that works, 
um, kind of side at this development when ESG came in. Because the uh, issue basically is that quantitative finance is now very, very well developed. To a very large extent, professional quantitative finance people understand where returns come from. Um, so everything's benchmarked to everything else. I know this might be kind of jargon speak, but hopefully it, it gets something of the nature of the game across. And I guess the way I'd put it is that if you come into the field of quantitative finance and you say, I've discovered a goose that lays golden eggs, people kind of look at you like, okay, show us the goose, show us the back test. It's a very skeptical field because a lot of the um, reliable ways of making money out of quantitative finance have already been discovered. So if you come along uh, claiming to have something new, first reaction of everybody is, is uh, skepticism, perhaps even cynicism. ESG never really figured out how it was marketing itself. It, it, it kind of marketed itself to a very large extent as being both, you know, promoting this uh, social vision of capitalism. But at the same time, it kind of gave people a wink and a nudge that they would get better returns. And this is why it drove the quantitative finance people crazy, because they said, how dare you come into our terrain that we've been working on since basically the 1970s. And we know exactly what explains most of these returns. It's extremely rare that you'll come up with a new framework to generate alpha, as they say. And you've just kind of stormed in the door and you've said, we've not only got this thing that's going to make the world a better place, but it'll also give you better returns. So the, the quantitative finance community was always very skeptical of this. And um, and so it doesn't surprise me greatly. I suppose the reason that I'm I'm saying this with, I wouldn't say a degree of confidence. I, I don't really have confidence and I don't really know what'll happen. We're not, we're not uh, certainty predictors. We're not Nostradamus on here. But the reason that I'm not surprised by these headlines, and I think they point in a specific direction, is because the general sense among quant finance people was that ESG would come along, it would get a good ride, it would have a lot of marketing money behind it. And then when the market started to soften or turn, it would be thrown under the bus. And that is exactly what we're seeing. The timing is very apropos. Markets are shaky right now. Everyone fears a recession. Housing markets are falling. All the good stuff that we usually cover on the podcast. Meanwhile, people like Larry Fink and S&P Global are quietly coming out and slitting the throat of ESG. Uh, kind of fits with what some of us expected. Well, just to play devil's advocate here for a second, let's look at you know what ESG is. I mean, the G means governance, and a lot of these you know governance metrics are just standard good corporate governance of the type that you would expect of a well-run company, right? As an investor, I would like the companies I invest in. I mean, ultimately, you're kind of buying a share of a company. You're not really buying a stock, as Warren Warren Buffett always says. So wouldn't I want to have a well-run, well-governed company? Equally, Whatever we think about climate change and whatever we think about the narrative about that and whatever we think about whether it's a anthropogenic phenomenon or not, you know, Western governments or in, in Western jurisdictions where these ESG stocks operate take climate change very seriously and they're going to want companies who take steps to mitigate that, to take steps to uh, improve the sustainability of their business model and in that sort of environment, long-term, that also is the sort of stock I want. I'm less certain about the social side of things. I'm not sure necessarily what that, that, that adds, but certainly the E and the G parts of ESG, isn't it just Philip Pilkington exactly the sort of stock that would indicate, yeah, this is a well-run company with a sustainable business model that's going to be friendly within the regulatory jurisdiction that it's working in, therefore... Yeah, this score does give me an indicator that it's a slightly better stock than a than a stock that's got a bad ESG score. Well, that's the effective implicit claim that the ESG proponents were making, and that was the implicit claim that I think was I won't say completely, but largely dismissed by quantitative finance people because what they're doing is they're using verbs in a sense, or sorry, nouns. What are they? <laughs> they're using words. Uh, to describe um, something that quantitative finance people think in pur purely quantitative terms. So if you take the example of governance, it seems to vaguely mean something like what you've said, good governance. 
Now, what would that actually mean? What does that mean in quant? A quant will immediately go, well, well, what is that? Okay. Does that mean that it'll have a lower bankruptcy rate? Will the, will the G negatively correlate with bankruptcy? Or does it have to do with size? Okay. Does it have to do with, um, with, with large incumbent country companies that are known to be well run blue chip types? Okay. Well, we've got a metric for that in quant finance. It's called quality. Okay. There's, there's actually a quality metric that uses, I won't go into it, but profit, uh, profitability, uh, sustain, sustainability of the profitability over time. So all these metrics are already there. And when somebody comes along and they say, well, I've got a new one, not only will it save the world, but it also has, it's better than the ones you guys have been working on for 40 years. It's met with extreme skepticism. So that's on the governance side. On the environmental side, you say, well, I'm an investor. I'll definitely want to invest in environmental least sustainable companies. Well, first of all, do you? If it, if it, if it negatively impacts your returns, do you care? So if I say that your portfolio can return 6% annual real, call it standard, 6% annual real, but you know, we can tilt it toward, uh, environmentally, uh, sustainable companies, but it'll probably bring your annual return down to 4% real. Are you okay with that? Do, will that work? Not just, not just are you okay with it? If you're a pension fund, will it work to meet your obligations? Maybe not. If you're a trust, will it, will it work to meet your obligations? Maybe not. So that would be kind of taking a hit on it. But the ESG people said, no, 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 the, um, it'll increase returns as well. Now, whereas you can say better governance of a company should in theory, uh, impact returns positively. Although, as I say, there are more precise ways to measure this already. And they've been around for a long time. If you say to me, an environmentally friendly company will have higher returns. Well, I don't see why it would. I mean, actually, they, they probably have to take, they'd be more cautious about what they do and so on. It will probably cost them more uh, in terms of their profits, right? Because they'd have to be, you know, more diligent about not letting the toxic goo flow into the river or whatever it is. I mean, I'd immediately say, well, it should lower returns in theory, but the ESG proponents have said no, and they've never really explained themselves. And then the social, I think you've kind of thrown your hands up a bit at the social because it's, if the environmental uh, one is hard to match up with increased returns, I have absolutely no idea why pursuing social goals, as in like internal promotions based on non-meritocratic principles or something, I have no idea why that will positively impact profitability or the bottom line of the company. And then that's one step. And then the next step is how do you even measure this, right? How do you measure like environmental stuff? And the, the actual problem when you really boil it down with ESG is there's no good agreement on how to measure any of this stuff. So all the metrics disagree with each other. It's actually a bit of a mess when you look under the hood, but this is more, this kind of gives more of a sense of why quant finance people, uh, for a, to a large degree, were very, very skeptical when this thing came along and, and, and suspected that it wouldn't be able to make good on many of its promises. And as I said, would probably be thrown under the bus when uh, returns started to to go wrong and uh, hedge funds or pension funds and trusts and individual investors started caring a lot more about the returns that they're going to get in the next three, four years. So we've got a situation at the moment where, you know, economies and perhaps stock markets as well might start, you know, most people appear to think that we're heading towards something of a downward correction in stock markets and, and we're already seeing quite significant downward corrections in uh, bond markets led of course by sovereign bonds as uh, central banks raise interest rates at a breakneck speed uh so exactly that is going to happen you, you know return is going to be more difficult to find beyond those people shorting markets and yet so many funds and um you know investment leaders and pundits have really bought into this whole ESG thing. So in that situation where, you know, it was long, as you say, it was long predicted that ESG would be thrown to the wolves at the first sign of trouble. We appear to have be having signs of trouble at the moment. We appear to see the first inklings of it being thrown to the wolves. In a few sentences or two, how is that going to balance out against all of those people who have, at the very least, psychologically and emotionally and in terms of their careers invested a great deal in the in the whole ESG I think there idea. were basically two categories of people who were um 
benefiting, I'd say, um, from the ESG. One were effectively public relations firms that were marketing the ESG. There was a lot of marketing money put behind ESG. Um, that'll dry up, but I'm sure the public relations firms will find another game. Intent, and maybe it won't dry up. I don't want to make any firm predictions, but you know, it feels like it might be on the way out. The other group were the the people being hired to do ESG internally. Now, these these people weren't quote unquote ESG specialists. I remember looking up a few jobs for these um, when I was in the market, and um, and basically they they'd hire you if you had a kind of a backing in normal finance stuff, mainly you know quant finance or. You're used to building models or constructing metrics or something. They say, okay, we'll come on and hire you uh, as part of the ESG team. And what struck me about the jobs was they were always a lot, lot vaguer spec <laughs> than if you wanted to be like, if it was like a, a guy in a quantitative portfolio, it would be very specific because it's very well, you know, known what that is. Um, so, so they'll lose out, but it's not, it's not really, uh, it's not like there's a category of ESG employees out there. It was people who were retooled and put into these ESG roles. What really happened, the best way to cut through kind of the myths about ESG and to explain properly, um, what happened and why maybe I've given off the impression that I'm not only skeptical, but some, somewhat hostile to it. And my concerns aren't the political ones at all. It's just that what it did was it, 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 it put another layer of risk management onto the finance sector. So the finance sector already saw a big gob of risk management put on top of it when the new regulatory regimes came in in 2008, 2009. And the promise of those was that they'd stop banking failures. Well, haha, we've talked about it on the, on the, <laughs> on the podcast in the past. It is not. Yeah, that's worked out really yeah, well. Yeah, so the regulations have not solved the banking failure problem, much to the shock of, you know, nobody who understands it. But um, they put a big gob of regulatory uh, pressure on the top of um, of the finance sector, and it was widely known. And I'll just say kind of qualitatively, in the post-2008 period, finance became a lot duller of a place to work, and uh, innovation was squashed. And maybe it should have been, I mean, financial innovation, what is that really? Is it really just getting around the rules? Okay, fine. But I'm just saying from a kind of excitement and job <laughs> job uh, satisfaction point of view, a, a lot of people comment on this. It was very well known. And what ESG did was it introduced another layer of risk management again. And so if you came up, it, it, it was very, um, I mean, it never happened to me. I, I was kind of gone, gone by the time it got really heavy. But um, if you can, you could imagine that if you worked your ass off to come up with a uh, really good um, investment idea, and you got to buy the risk management department, which <laughs> it's always kind of like the first hurdle. Well, first of all, you convince people it's a good idea, then you get it by the risk management department, and then you have to schlep up to the you know fifth floor and get it by the ESG department. And at that point, there's probably been so many board meetings that your idea has run out of gas. So that's kind of actually what ESG did. It kind of just hobbled innovation in finance. Again, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm self-consciously aware that innovation in finance is an unusual thing, but that's why it kind of annoyed people who were trying to come up with cool new metrics and so on. Some dim future. Dim sum bonds are on the rise, according to recent reports. Just to give some sense, first of all, obviously what a dim sum bond is, because what, what is a dim sum bond? It's a bond issued uh, by foreign companies, often multinationals, but it, it doesn't have to be companies, but it's usually companies, foreign entities that issue these bonds and they're issued denominated in the Chinese currency in yuan. Or to think through all the aspects of it is quite complicated, and we'll get into a discussion about it shortly, but it's not that dissimilar from when, say, companies in Argentina issue dollar-denominated bonds. Now, the motivations are different because, obviously, uh, when a company issues a dollar-denominated bond in Argentina, it's to borrow physical good cash dollars because the domestic peso is so weak. Um, dim sum bonds obviously aren't used for that. The principle is the same. If, if you're a multinational company and you want to get access to an, a, a cash uh, supply of yuan, then you issue one of these dim sum bonds. For the investor, the person who buys the dim sum bond, it, it gives them exposure. It, it gives them proxy exposure to the Chinese capital markets. So obviously the Chinese capital markets are closed to outsiders. You can't just go in and buy Chinese equities easily like you can in the US or the UK or anything like that. 
Um, but this gives them a proxy access because you, you, you're selling, you're buying a bond that's denominated in yuan and it pays you back in yuan with interest. And if the yuan rises or falls in value, your bond rises and falls in foreign currency terms and value. So it's a really interesting instrument in a lot of ways. Not hasn't really reinvented the wheel, but um, because of the close nature of the of the Chinese capital markets, it, it's a very compelling product. So just before we move on, I'll just give some sense that dim sum bonds have been around for about. 13, 14 years, somewhere around that. And, um, and they used to be, it used to be a pretty small niche market. It was, it was viewed with like people were looking at it. Like, what is that? Um, it, there was a lot of interest. There's always been a lot of interest in it. Um, but it really started to take off in, uh, 2019. So just to give some sense in 2018, there was under a hundred billion yuan in dim sum bonds issued. Um, 2019 that almost doubles and today we are nearly i'd say around four times that so we're up to um we're up to about 300 400 billion in these foreign in these uh yuan uh, denominated bonds now we can talk about why that's important in a moment but just to give the reader some sense there has been an explosion of these things in the past four to five years so basically just to explain to listeners, uh, when companies want to raise debt, they can, you know, ask bank a bank or a consortium of banks for a loan. Or the other way that they can do about it is go to the capital markets and raise money by selling bonds. And bonds are a security where you buy a, a, a portion of that com- company's debt. It's usually like, I don't know, a $1,000 bond or $10,000 bond or whatever, but you get this kind of portion of the debt. And then you can actually trade that security so you could sell it and buy it and, and all of the rest of it on what's known as the secondary market. Now, one of the things that have been around for a long time on things like euro bonds, which um, although they sound like they're denominated in euros, they're, they're often not. They're often denominated in dollars, but it's basically a, a, a company or even a sovereign, like a, a country, selling debt, selling bonds in a currency that isn't their own and it's it's quite often dollars or euros but it's it's quite often um legally um organized through english law as well so here we have dim sum bonds which are, are, are kind of similar to that it's it's basically a for, like a non-chinese entity which wants to raise money by selling debt by selling bonds but instead of selling them in say dollars or euros or it's it's national currency that might be i don't know pesos or dinars or or rupees or whatever they they're selling them in renminbi in rmb which is the chinese currency so that basically allows them to raise money on the chinese capital markets through hong kong because chinese capital markets are actually closed um and for you know, the holders of, of Renminbi capital, that gives them access essentially to, um, to foreign risk, to foreign debt exposure. Um, and on the flip side of that, uh, it also allows a, a very interesting exposure to the, to the Chinese economy and the Chinese monetary policy and Chinese interest rates and, and, and all of the rest of it. So it seems that there would be a great deal of interest in this from, uh, the capital markets from corporations. Um, the, the thing that I'm really interested in though, Philip, is that the Chinese capital markets are closed. And this is often something that is considered one of the main barriers to the yuan or, or the renminbi, whatever you want to call it. I'm not sure I know the difference. Is it like pounds and sterling? I don't know if listeners want to let us know. They can do, but, um, you know, one of the big barriers to the yuan or, or renminbi taking over or, or, or taking a bigger role as a kind of a global currency is the fact that that capital account is shut in China. But this to me seems like a very interesting way of China exporting capital. And it should in theory have a lot of capital to export because it, it, it of course has a huge trade or current account surplus. So, you know, it's capital account must be the mirror of that. So in theory, it should have a lot of capital to export and, I guess this is one potential way of doing it. Yeah, I think it's worth uh, focusing on the institutional structure of how this works. And it gives, 
it hints in a similar direction that this might be some sort of like proto opening of the Chinese capital account. Now that's a bit of an exaggeration. We're talking about very small flows here, but interesting experiment nonetheless. So basically the, um, the way this works is that, um, Hong Kong and China will look the other way. They don't, uh, they don't try and regulate these things or anything. If you issue them, it's fine. They don't mind. Um, the other interesting component of it is obviously one of the big things about, um, issuing financial products is you want them to be in a credit, credit, um, a credible regulatory and legal environment. Basically, because you want to be able to get paid. If, if, um, if you don't get your, your interest coupon payment on time, um, and it looks like, it looks like the borrower isn't going to pay you, you need to take them to court effectively. Um, and so what they, they have is, um, that the dim sum bonds are effectively, um, regulated out of Hong Kong. And the massive advantage there is pretty obvious. Hong Kong is a, uh, is used to be a British, uh, financial outpost. So that means that you have effectively a sort of a clone of the city of London in Hong Kong, which was obviously recently basically taken over by China. So, so anyone who buys these dim sum bombs will be actually quite um, familiar with the regulatory and legal structure of Hong Kong because it's a big financial district. Um, so I can see a lot of uh, learning curve stuff going on here. It's not just giving foreigners a taste of of exposure to chinese capital markets and you know getting them kind of interested in that getting them used to the market dynamics and so on but it's also it's also allowing hong kong to provide a kind of an experimental place to see um how opening up the capital account for example would be managed um what what type of skills are needed i'm sure there's plenty of chinese financial analysts working in hong kong learning these skills at the moment in in which case, in theory, they could go back to the uh, to, to the Chinese banks, and if they ever wanted to, for example, partially open the capital markets to allow people to invest in, I don't know, go, uh, Chinese government debt or state uh, state debt um, or even company debt, um, the skills would would be in place uh, in order to do that, and they'd be familiar with 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 everything that that entailed. So, I definitely. I wouldn't say that the, no, the dim sum market, as I said, has been around for 15 years and it sort of spread it up, I think, in a sense, organically. And the Chinese and the, and, and Hong Kong basically said, yeah, we're, we're okay with this. Um, but this is kind of something we discuss, uh, semi regularly on the podcast that often, often, uh, as things start to change in the world, uh, in terms of economic and trade and finance relationships, that the market will kind of do its job and it'll just spring up in that direction and experiments will start to happen. And when you see experiments like this, you say, hmm, they could kind of, they could be the first step in the eventual opening up or partial o- opening up of the Chinese capital account, for example. Um, and I definitely think in the, in the future, the Chinese capital account will open. And I think a lot of people are waiting for it with bated breath. And the dim sum bonds are, are fascinating in that respect, uh, uh to watch. Russia blood to the head. So the Wall Street Journal has essentially uh, called time on sanctions. Uh, the U.S. financial paper of record, it seems, has declared them a failure. Uh, last week, it had a big, a big article with the headline that. So the Wall Street Journal has essentially uh, called time on sanctions the stalemate. It's essentially uh, saying that sanctions haven't worked as they were a- uh, advertised. I think this is a very good time to uh, analyze why they failed and what that says about Western decision makers, because you and I, Philip, have been saying since uh, February last year that sanctions were doomed to fail. Um, it's something that we've discussed extensively on the Multipolarity podcast as well. But I thought it would be a very good idea to spend a little time looking at why they failed. And as far as my research takes me, they failed because of five key misunderstandings about Russia. So the first key misunderstanding was about the size and quality of the Russian economy. Uh, it's a commonplace thing, or it's entered the vernacular in the West, I suppose, uh, that Russia is a gas station with nukes, or it makes nothing of value, as President Obama said, or it's, a, I think, a gas station masquerading as, a, 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 as an economy, as uh, John McCain said, this really has uh, entered the vernacular. 
Uh, it's, it's become kind of the received wisdom. It's no bigger than Italy's economy, essentially. However, that's not quite the case. Of course, if you look at nominal uh, GDP, then Russia is just a little bit larger than Italy's economy. However, the, the, the problem with nominal GDP is it doesn't properly capture the purchasing power and things like inflation within that economy. I mean, if economy A has exactly the same stuff in it than economy B, but the you know it costs less to get that stuff, can we really say that economy A is a smaller con- economy? No, we can't. So if you look at purchasing power parity, sometimes known as uh, GDP PPP, which a lot of economists prefer as a measure of real kind of GDP size. In fact, the Russian economy was almost as big as Germany's. Now, the French economist um, Jacques Sapir went further than that. He actually looked at the productive part of the economy. He said that services within an economy, they vary in productive value. I think we all intrinsically know that's true. Um, you know, financial services might be highly productive and highly valuable, but there are, you know, other services in the economy that are less so. And he found that when he adjusted for that kind of quality, Russia, the Russian economy was bigger than Germany's and it was twice the size of France's. And I don't think that anybody would consider an economy of that size a pushover. So that was the first misunderstanding was the size of the Russian economy was bigger than kind of widely and instinctively understood. The second was Russia's position in the world economy. This was something that you wrote about, Philip, almost exactly a year ago. You said that, in fact, because of what Russia produces and because of its position in the supply chain is essentially the world's natural resources superpower, the world needed Russia more than Russia needed the world. Russia was quite autarkic itself in terms of the things that were essential to it, things like food, metals, um, uh, uh, things like coal, energy, oil, gas, timber, uh, petrochemicals, plastics, like fertilizers, all of these things that are, are just like the very basic things that you need for human survival. Russia's 100% autarkic in and is also one of the leading one, two, or three exporters of those goods in each of those categories all over the world. Um, and people thought, it seems, that Russia needed us more than we needed Russia because of a few kind of high-tech things that they assumed that Russia would never be able to get from, say, China or through third countries. Um, So that was the second misunderstanding, the place of Russia in the world. The third misunderstanding was because it's impossible to isolate a country like that. We thought that Russia would be isolated when, in fact, it hasn't been It's been able to sell its oil and its gas to places like India and China because these countries have sold great opportunity to get oil and gas at a discount. Um, It's also been able to import things from these countries. For instance, at first, the Russian car industry took a terrible hit when it was a real crisis. But now we're seeing Chinese manufacturers who are clearly exceptional at what they do because now I think they're the largest car exporter in the world. They're, they're taking over a lot of markets, especially in EVs. We're seeing Chinese manufacturers come and set up shop in Russia and they're recovering in that way. And the third way, of course, is that European businesses are still selling through to Russia, but through third party com- countries. If you look at kind of German exports to places like Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan and Georgia, like, you know, they've gone up by like 400% in the last year. And they're obviously selling to Russia still, but just through third countries. And in fact, Europe is also buying off Russia, but through third countries. Refined oil products are coming from places like India and Morocco and Turkey. So that's the uh, third thing is like Russia was much more difficult to isolate than was realized. The fourth thing briefly is that it was the received wisdom that the West didn't do anything when Russia annexed Crimea and when the Ukrainian civil war started um, with the uprisings in the Donbass. Now, in fact, the West did. The West placed a whole range of quite um, tough sanctions on Russia, and that did affect the Russian economy. And in addition to that, understanding which way the wind was blown, the Russian government prioritized stability and savings and a very conservative economic policy. And because of that, and because of the sanctions, 
the Russian economy never quite regained its pre-2014 trend. And it's very difficult to kind of break something twice. You, you know, you can't like knock an economy down twice. That's hard. In the meantime, though, the economy, because of that, became much more resilient to sanctions. You know, it was already sanctioned, learned how to deal with them, and they pursued a very safety-first economic model, which made them much more resilient. Finally, was a misunderstanding about the quality of public administration. In fact, in financial circles, it was well known that the Russian macroeconomic and monetary policy team was one of the best in the world. Um, you know, famously, Elvira um, Nabulina, uh, the chairman of the Russian Central Bank, is, is known as one of the best central bankers in the world. And in fact, they navigated the extreme stress of spring and early summer last year when all of these sanctions were initially imposed extremely well and extremely skillfully. So this is why sanctions have failed. And, and, and the really interesting thing about this, Philip, I think, is that all of these points were known to people who were experts in the Russian economy before sanctions were imposed. It was known that the Russian economy was much bigger, much more powerful, and much more important than was kind of widely accepted by the narrative. It was known that it was already under serious sanctions and was and was building up a kind of a real uh, fortress economy to prepare for more. And it was known that the Russian um, economic team were of high quality. Uh, and yet still we did it. And I think that says a lot about the quality of uh, Western strategic thinking and planning. Yeah, I'd go slightly further than that. Uh, it says a lot about the quality of economics <laughs> that's going on in the West at the moment. Actually, I'd I'd say in general, I I think the um, I think it's not that we have very poor economists and so on. It's a, it's a multitude of factors, but um, what has definitely happened is public facing economists have become completely zeroed in on questions of monetary policy and don't uh, often talk about much else. But you know, beyond that. How did we, as you say, all of this stuff was, if not known, knowable. Um, I wasn't an expert on the Russian economy, but I'd studied uh, the Russian bond market and I knew the basic dynamics behind uh, ruble price determination. Well, Philip, I remember when, uh, you, you know, like before we kind of knew each other, I think one of the reasons we got in touch, we, we were both kind of screaming on Twitter, this is going to fail. It's not going to work out. Uh, I don't, I mean, I'm not a macroeconomist and, and certainly not an area expert on the Russian economy. And, you know, you're, you are a macroeconomist, but, you know, not focused in on the Russian economy, but you were kind of saying this isn't going to work out. And you even wrote a big essay for the critic. Uh, a, a website and a magazine in the UK explaining why it wasn't going to work out in, in, in very, you know, common sense terms. And I don't mean common sense for a macroeconomist. It was like you read that article or I read that article and said, yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's not going to work out. Right. And that was kind of last May, June. You can put that remember. down to, okay, we got the argument right. But the, the issue here was much deeper. I mean, it, it more so what you alluded to um, in your last comment, which is that is that all this stuff should have been known. I mean, just to g give one example, um, when President Biden went out and made the comments on the sanctions, he was given uh, uh, GDP numbers that were not purchasing power parity adjusted. Now you've talked about the PPP adjustment. I would I would make a much stronger case for PPP adjustment when you're measuring relative economic size than you did. If you don't do a PPP adjustment, you're just talking rubbish. Because if, if the price structure in an economy is different, not PPP adjusting makes literally no sense. I mean, just to give some sense of why that is, if you, if, if the price of bread is 50% in one economy as in another, and the same amount of bread is sold, the one in the 50% discount one will only count that as half as much bread being sold. It doesn't make any sense. You have to PPP adjust. And doing a PPP adjustment or not maybe doing it yourself, but understanding the need to do a PPP adjustment should be taught in undergraduate macroeconomics. It should be, it should be taught in your international trade class, you know, or something. Maybe they have a new one now, but usually they had trade and international comparisons soldered together 
in a uh, in an undergraduate economics course. Definitely getting to a master's level and not understanding the the need to do a PPP adjustment on on an economy is shocking. So um so and and by the way, just one last thing: the PPP adjustment is so is is out there in the public mindset in the form of the Economist's Big Mac index. Um, I won't go into why they use Big Macs and so on, but their basic idea is explains the PPP really simply. That if a Big Mac costs less in one country than another, you have to do some sort of price adjustment. Um, and they use Big Macs because it's you know everyone's got a Big Mac and maybe McDonald's if you want some money for advertising. I don't know, but um, uh, I'd never imply such thing. But um, but you know, so the PPP adjustment it's it's out there. It's in the it's in the public sphere. So why didn't an economic advisor on the White House team do the proper adjustment. I don't know. I don't have a good explanation for that. And then, and then from there, it you know the the, the other stuff is is slightly more explainable, but not that much more explainable. If if people didn't even know that the the actual size of the Russian economy, which as you say is close to Germany's size, are we really surprised that they didn't understand fertilizer markets? That they didn't understand the fundamental fungibility of energy markets, something I was going on about the whole time. I was like, you learn this in, in undergraduate economics classes. Fungible goods can, you know, if you try and ban them one place, it'll crop up somewhere else because the price dynamics will rebalance it. It's like whack-a-mole. And, uh, and, and there's no more fungible good than oil. <laughs> it's like the most fungible market on the planet. So, why were these things just just forgotten? I mean, I think there was an amount of hysteria at play um, behind these decisions and so on. Yeah, I call it uh, do-somethingism. There was a kind of an emotional wave that something must be done, and this is something, therefore we must do this thing. It was, you know, because the idea that you could, uh, I mean, if let me put it this way. If somebody said, let's, cut, let's embargo Saudi Arabia, okay, let's not let them sell any oil. People would say that that was madness, right? You know, like we need Saudi Arabian oil, like the world needs that oil. And the idea that you could somehow isolate Saudi Arabia without any, you know, serious consequences to the rest of the world, or more to the point that you could get the entire world to get on board with this kind of, you know, like economic flagellation, it would just be preposterous. And yet, Russia is not just the second largest exporter of oil. It's also one of the biggest exporters of fertilizer, grain, timber, a whole range of metals, like things like nickel, uh, steel, uh, iron ore, um, you know, palladium and gold and, pre you know, these precious metal complex. I mean, it, it really seems very strange to think that you would be able to either cut that sort of economy out of the world trading system without you know horrendous consequences or ask other countries to join in your kind of crusade right like why should i mean did they really think that india would would kind of damage their economy just to kind of to help with a european war uh, that seems very strange to me that seems like really poor thing you spoke about right? the cut meme came from <laughs> Because wherever that meme came from, it it's stuck in the public mindset so much that it it couldn't have been overcome uh, by facts and reason uh, at the time. Yeah, you know what's well, what's really interesting about this is when I researched this, I was actually shocked. I mean, I think that the first person that I could find said something similar was John McCain, who said that Russia is a gas station masquerading as a country. Now, one of the Interesting thing was was um, the Israeli popular uh, scientist um, Yuval Noah Harari, uh, who wrote the very famous book uh, *Sapiens*. Uh, he he said exactly that. Uh, you know, last March that Russia was a gas station with nukes, and he, if even quite serious-minded, very thoughtful people like uh, Harari think that. It seems that that kind of concept had permeated the Western mind. It's, it's that kind of classic apocryphal uh, Mark Twain saying, "It ain't, it ain't what you don't know that kills you. It's what you know for sure, but just ain't so." And it seems that everybody thought that Russia was nothing but a gas station. John McCain, who was kind of known for his um, bravado and 
Bellico's foreign policy statements. If if John McCain effectively memed the world into thinking that the Russian economy wasn't important, that's crazy, man. But uh, it could be the case. I mean, I it's very, very hard to explain otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, the real negative thing about this is, is in my research from this, I read a um, an article by somebody called Policy Tensor, and he said that essentially economic war is like that old playground game of mercy. I don't know if readers ever played that, but I did where you kind of, you and another lad when you're, I don't know, eight or ten, you kind of grip hands and, and, and squeeze and twist until the other one gives up out of pain. And this is a little bit like... Um, uh, sanctions. You're, you're waging economic warfare. And it's quite clear at the moment, as far as I can see, the Russian economy is growing this year, whereas Europe is seeing falling GDP. And, and, and the source of that decline of GDP is all, in the, is all in the industrial and manufacturing sector. Europe is really starting to deindustrialize. And we're starting to see that in some completely dire purchasing uh, manager indexes, which are essentially surveys of uh, management within the manufacturing sector uh, with regard to their confidence of the future. And these are really starting to show like, you know, 2008 financial crisis, COVID lockdown crisis, levels of of, uh, negative sentiment about the future. And this is matched by what we've seen about, first of all, high energy consumption companies shutting down in Europe, like fertilizer manufacturer, glass manufacturer, and petrochemical manufacturer. And now it's starting to filter down into into kind of less energy intensive industry as well. So it you know it really seems that this kind of um the you know this misapprehension about their own strength and uh, and Russia's apparent weakness has rebounded uh, quite significantly and at the moment they're losing that game of mercy for more than half a year we've loved giving you free multipolarity that's going to continue in the main but we also want to offer something extra for our super fans it's been really gratifying to hear that so many of you love what we do and value the analysis and information that we provide starting in two weeks time that's the 24th of August, we'll be offering exclusive episodes of Multipolarity behind a paywall. Just go to Patreon, sign up for our $5, £5 or €5 tier. Sign up is easy. You can cancel any time you want, so you know you'll always be getting value for your five bucks. Just search for Multipolarity the Podcast on Patreon and be among the first to help us chart the rise of the new multipolar world order.